morning, and it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I, I, I got a bunch of pictures this morning from our delegates in their Hong Kong today. Of course, their day is done. Uh, they're about 12 hours ahead of us, so they've already had worship, and they've already been together with the church over there in Hong Kong. And I got a bunch of pictures, so see, here's one of Dave giving the gift. <laughs> giving the gift. And, uh, and there's other ones here of the team from uh, Halfway Oregon. A whole bunch of them that he's kind of neat to get. You know, I actually wanted this as a side note, but I think one of my uh, beliefs about hell is that people in hell sit around with little screens looking at each other's vacation pictures. That's, <laughs> that's one of my uh, heresies, I guess, uh, in, in that. But, uh, anyway, continue to pray for uh, our delegates that they are there to help celebrate the 30th anniversary of uh, the CMS Church Planting Ministry in Macau, as well as the, the anniversary in Hong Kong. <coughs> And if you're not aware of that part of the world, uh, there in Hong Kong, that's where you fly in on the big jet. And then from Hong Kong, you take a ferry, unless you're really rich, you can take a helicopter. Uh, you go across the Pearl River estuary, uh, kind of to the southwest, and you come to the peninsula where Macau is located. It's about an hour trip by ferry, and that's what they'll be doing sometime this week as they travel over to Macau to spend time with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ there. So continue to pray for them. And we look forward to their return and also pray for us and Kathy and David and Stephen as they leave this week and uh, travel well, many hours across the Pacific Ocean to go and join in the celebration. So we are thankful that we are able to participate in that event. And so uh, we are thankful for them. Well, this morning, uh, the primary question is, is what is your identity? What is your identity? And I see some of you reaching for your driver's license, and uh, you're in trouble if you're doing that, all right? Uh, but I'm reminded of uh, what scientists tell us, especially about ducks. And uh, there's an issue with ducks. I don't know if you knew this, but ducks uh, immediately imprint, they bond with the first thing they see when they hatch. And scientists tell a story about that soon after birth, there was one duckling uh, born on a farm, and uh, the first thing it saw was a collie dog. And it imprinted with the collie dog, and it thought it was a dog. Essentially, it went around with this collie, and uh, it was supposed to see a mama duck, but it saw a collie, and it imprinted with this dog. And <coughs> the baby duck decided that was its mother, it followed it around, around the farm, uh, it looked for it for protection, it slept with the dog at night, <clears throat> it spent the hot day under the porch with the dog, and when a car pulled into the driveway, uh, along with the dog, the duck would run out from under the front porch, quacking viciously, trying to peck at the tires of the new arrival. Uh, some things could not be changed, however. This little duckling still quacked, it loved the water, it flapped its wings, sometimes it acted like a duck, and sometimes it acted like a dog. Uh, you know, Christians are very similar. We are very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, we have a confusion in our identity because we are part of the world we've been born into and we've grown up into this fallen world as uh, the Bible describes it. We've learned the ways of the world. We've become like it. We are so much part of the culture, we don't even recognize it. And that's the value of going overseas to a different culture is recognizing that not all people around the world uh, live the same kinds of lives. 
And so as we become a Christian, if you're a believer today, you are a resident of two different worlds. You are a resident of this world, this fallen world we live in, in this material world, and we're also uh, spiritual residents of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there can be some confusion, and it's easy to forget who we really are. The Bible tells us that when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we die again, essentially, and spiritually, we are no longer who we used to be. We find that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. But that is a fundamental issue that I remind myself of, is that I'm no longer who I used to be. I've told my testimony many times, but I was not a believer in Jesus Christ until I was 28. I've been atheistic and agnostic before that, even though I grew up in the church. Uh, I was uh, not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ until I was 28, and so I remind myself I'm no longer who I used to be. The Bible declares it so. I may look the same, just older. Uh, I may uh, look in the mirror and recognize myself, and yet I am no longer who I used to be. And we are like the duckling, though, and sometimes we get confused about where we belong. Uh, we're supposed to be uh, a people of God as a church, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians helps us to see who we really are. This little letter, if you have your Bibles, turn to the first chapter of Ephesians in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters, and this letter we will be talking about today. And just basically introducing it today as we begin. And uh, there's much that influences in this world, influences us in this world. Uh, our inconsistent behavior is the negative imprinting, if you will. Uh, it's easy to follow what our culture and uh, our world says. And Ephesians corrects that for us. It talks about our position in Christ and then in light of that, our practice of the faith. And Ephesians is probably the pinnacle point of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and in concert with the fact that we are part of what is called the church. Whether we belong to a local church or not, we are part of the universal church, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible spends a lot of time telling us who we really are, and if we understand and believe it, then we are better able to live it out and to recognize the world around us for what it is. We are able to see what the calling dog really is in the world around us. Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they have come to be, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he prays that they would have spiritual enlightenment to grasp who they have become and to enjoy what it means to be a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live like Christ more consistently. Today, we live in an unusual time. I think it's really not all that unusual. I think it's really a mirror of the first century world that the Apostle Paul and the fledgling churches lived in at that time. We are facing an increasing anti-Christian, anti-biblical, anti-truth hostility. We live in a day and age uh, which calls us for well-informed engagement of the culture around us. And that means at your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your very family, perhaps, a well-informed engagement, but also a courteous engagement with our culture. There's too many people who name the name of Christ who rant and rave against our culture, and I don't see that that's making much difference right now other than polarizing different positions. 
I've read this quote before, but Mark Bailey, who's president of Dallas Seminary, wrote these words. We live in a conflicted culture, but we should not turn pale and run. And we should not bury our head in the sand. Christianity is a confrontational faith. It challenges human nature. It challenges sin. It challenges what one believes about the future. As a result, our culture hates Christianity. In the face of this hatred and scorn, we need to do what the Apostle Paul did, wisely and winsomely proclaim the truth, unquote. And really, this is a perfect time to visit this little letter of Ephesians as we come to it. We've spent the last <clears throat> several weeks doing the historical background of the book of Acts. Remember, the book of Acts is the history book of the church. The church was, began in Acts chapter 2, and later on we looked at the Apostle Paul's visits to the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was on the southwest coast of what is now Turkey. Uh, it was a major city at this time in the first century. It was a Roman city. It was a, a, a city uh, capital of the province of Asia, the Roman political province of Asia, which took up much of that surrounding area. And the Apostle Paul was there to teach the people, to evangelize, to plant the church, to help the fledgling church grow. He spent some three years in Ephesus. The last time we saw the Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 20, where he visited with the leadership from the church at Ephesus while he was on his way to Jerusalem. And now when we come to this letter of Ephesians, uh, some years have passed, three or four years, possibly have passed, and it's now about 62 AD, and the Apostle Paul is in a prison in Rome. And he's writing letters to the churches. They're called the prison epistles, if you will. And the prison epistles were written from this prison in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are known as the prison epistles. So Ephesians was one of them. And he's writing to encourage these believers at the church at Ephesus. Remember, they lived in a very pagan culture in Ephesus. It was the center of worship of the temple of Diana or Artemis more accurately. Uh, the Roman goddess was Diana, the Asian Greek goddess was Artemis, but they were blended into one in this worship center. In fact, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was then one of the seven known wonders of the world. And it was, had many adherents, many disciples would come and worship Artemis at this temple. So it was a very pagan culture. It also included at least five worship sites of the worship of the emperor of Rome. Remember, he was considered godlike and he demanded worship. And therefore, this was a very pagan place. And as we saw in the book of Acts, Christianity came and it turned their world upside down. But in reality, it turned the world right side up. And that's what Christianity does. And uh, there was much resistance, much uh, difficulty in the early church there. And so today, my purpose is simply to introduce this letter. We're going to talk about the author, those who received the letter, and then the aim or the purpose of the letter very briefly. And hopefully that will give you uh, a, a front door entrance into this letter if you've not been here for a while or maybe you've not been here at all. But the introductory matters are what concerns us in the first three verses of this little letter. Oftentimes we read the introduction and we just skim over it because it seems like just a formal introduction uh, to a letter, especially Paul's letters, because he tends to repeat himself in his letters and use some of the same vocabulary and sentence structure that he did. But first of all, we're going to look at the author of the letter. We already know, I've already given away, I believe it's the Apostle Paul. And uh, the Apostle Paul is one that's attributed to, and for the first 19 centuries of church history, it was 
not a debate about who wrote the letter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul did. But from about the 1820s on, with the German criticism, historic criticism and rationality, uh, that became questioned. So you may go to some churches today and hear some preachers proclaim that Paul was not the author of this letter. And they based that on certain things, but I do believe the Apostle Paul, based upon the what we call the internal evidence and the external evidence, uh, was the author that God used to write this letter to the Ephesian believers. And he identifies himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul. He puts his name right up in the front, right there. And the best manuscripts that we have in existence of the original, uh, that came after the original document, have that name, Paulus, for Paul, at the beginning of the letter. And in this day and age, in not only in religious writings or Christianity, but also in secular writings, when people would write a letter, they would identify themselves right up front and then identify who was receiving it. Whereas typically when we write a letter, if we do write letters, maybe email, uh, we wait for the bottom to sign our name to let people know who wrote and what uh, preceded the signature. But in this day, they, they uh, put their name up front. And so Paul follows this, uh, this, this style, if you will. And then we see that he identifies himself. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle simply means a sent one. And it's a technical term, and it's only applied to about 14 people in the Bible. And uh, the 12, of course, out of Luke chapter 6, were identified by Jesus Christ as apostles. And one of the requirements of an apostle was that they saw the risen Christ. They saw the risen Lord. And after the apostle Paul, then known as Saul, the persecutor of the church in Acts 9, after he became a believer, his encounter with the risen Christ, there on the Damascus Road, and then he spent some years in time in Arabia, and I believe that's when Jesus Christ appeared to him and taught him. And so Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and he uses this term of Messiah. Christ is the term Messiah in Hebrew, the one who was sent as the Savior of the world. We often use Jesus Christ as his first and last name, although Christ is the, is the, is the, uh, the designator of his purpose, and he is the Savior. And so he's an apostle. He's the sent one. And it says, by the will of God. By the will of God. John R. W. Stott, the late British pastor and theologian, wrote these words. He said, Paul claims the same title which Jesus had given to the twelve in Luke 6, and whose background in both Old Testament and rabbinic Judaism designated somebody specially chosen, called, and sent to teach with authority. Uh, for this ministry, Paul had not volunteered, nor had a church appointed him. On the contrary, his apostleship derived from the will of God and from the choice and commission of Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, what does that tell us? What is the implication, very direct implication for us as we sit here reading this passage of Scripture in our own language, in a Bible that is authoritative, authentic, and is trustworthy, I believe that we must listen to the message of Ephesians with appropriate attention and humility. Uh, for we must regard its author neither as a private individual who is ventilating his personal opinion, nor as a gifted but fallible human teacher, nor even the church's greatest missionary hero, but as an apostle 
of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and therefore a teacher whose authority is precisely the authority of Jesus Christ himself, in whose name and by whose inspiration he writes. Did you get that last part? Whose authority is precisely the authority of Jesus Christ himself, in whose name and by whose inspiration he writes. Charles Hodge expressed it well in the middle of the 19th century when he said, this epistle, this letter, reveals itself as the work of the Holy Spirit as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God, unquote. That is one thing about preaching the Word of God, about listening to the preaching of the Word of God, about reading and studying the Word of God on your own, is it's not man's opinion. If it's handled correctly and accurately, it will be the very Word of God. Remember, when we read Scripture, when we study Bible, study the Bible, there is one interpretation and many applications. There are not many interpretations. There may be many understandings, because that's why we have so many heresies that surround us today. But there is one correct interpretation and many applications. And so Paul is the author of the letter, even though many liberal and not-so-liberal scholars don't believe he was. They believe probably maybe a disciple of the Apostle Paul or one who came some years later wrote this letter in his name. But the internal evidence and external evidence demonstrate that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Who are the recipients of the letter? Look again at verse 1. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus, to the saints who are faithful, uh, who are at Ephesus and who are faithful. And so the recipients are these saints. And we think of saints in a 21st century context as being somebody who's either a plaster statue or somebody who really did great things in life. Yet the Bible talks about believers in Jesus Christ as being set apart unto Jesus. In other words, this is a positional standing, and we are referred to as saints. Believers are referred to as saints, set apart by God. Not somebody who is determined by the Pope to have done miracles, but every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as a saint. Now, you may not feel very saintly this morning. Believe it or not, I have mornings I don't feel very saintly, okay? My wife will confirm this, okay? And, but yet the Bible declares that. What do I believe, my emotions and my feelings, or what do I believe that God says here and is declared very clearly? And so he addresses it to these believers. And it says at Ephesus, they are set apart by God. Now there also, I need to let you know, there's some controversy because the earliest manuscript we have, which comes from about the second century, so it's about 50 years removed from the original manuscript that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote down, or perhaps his secretary wrote down, and they sent to the city of Ephesus, just to give you a little picture of how that happened. They would have one scroll, and they would send it to Ephesus, and uh, or to other cities, other uh, like Corinthians and places, and then the people there would read it, and then they would make copies of it, and then they would distribute those copies, so the word of God was spreading. And so uh, these manuscripts, the original manuscript, we do not have Paul's original manuscript. It disappeared. It probably got worn out, uh, and it disappeared. Uh, but yet we have manuscripts that came later. In fact, the Bible is very well attested. There are over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone around the world. 
fragments of manuscripts, uh, sometimes whole manuscripts, and uh, the Bible is one of the best attested pieces of literature in all of history. Uh, for instance, uh, this, this manuscript we have, I think it's in the British Museum of, of Ephesians, uh, which doesn't list that it's to the saints at Ephesus, it just says to the saints, uh, is from the second century, about 50 years removed. If you went to the university and you studied, studied Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh, that book, supposedly written by Caesar, the earliest manuscript we have for that literary work is removed by a thousand years, and there are only three copies. And so it's not attested to, and yet a university will tell you that, oh, this is Caesar's Gallic Wars, and this is well attested. And yet the Bible is much more attested to as authentic, authoritative, and trustworthy because of the manuscript evidence that we have around the world. And so <clears throat> here we see that uh, the saints who were at Ephesus, even though Ephesus doesn't occur in that early manuscript, perhaps it was a letter that was to be distributed and it would have been sent to Ephesus first and then they would copy it and distribute it to the other churches in the province of Asia. And so that's an ongoing debate among scholars. We don't need to worry about it. Uh, we see that most Bible translations include to Ephesus, and so this is trustworthy in that sense. And it tells us about these recipients who are faithful in Christ Jesus. How do we take that? Well, there's two ways we can take that in this context here. As we study the grammar and syntax of the sentence, uh, you can have an active sense, which means that they are trusting they have faith, okay? And as believers in Christ, we have exercised faith. We have trusted in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. We have become fully persuaded what Jesus has said is true. And he offers us everlasting life. He doesn't mean part-time life. He doesn't mean uh, maybe part-time life, but he means everlasting life forever. And uh, so we can trust him for it. That's having faith. The second sense that... The first sense is active. The second sense is passive, which means that these believers are trustworthy or they are faithful. Well, uh, I don't think we need to choose between either one of those. I think both of them apply here. Not only are they having faith, but they are trustworthy. And the Apostle Paul is encouraged by them, and he's writing to them. Then he tells us this very important thing in verse 1 there. They are faithful in what? In Christ Jesus. This is an important little phrase. We're going to see in, in uh, the book of Ephesians that this phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, or its equivalent, appears 35 times in this little letter. More than any other New Testament book, the believer is in Christ. As it says here, he's in the heavenly places in Christ, one free, chosen in him, adopted through Christ, in the beloved, redeemed in him, given an inheritance in him, given hope in him, sealed in him, made alive together with Christ, raised and seated with him, created in Christ, brought near by his blood, growing in Christ, a partaker of the promise of Christ, given access through faith in him. Thirty-five times those equivalents through there. That's why I say you're no longer who you used to be. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether or not you believed in him when you were four years old at the vacation Bible school or as an adult like myself, you are in Christ. You are no longer who you used to be or what your potential was as a non-believer. 
So this is exactly what the Word of God is teaching us. Our identity, we need to remind ourselves who we are and whose we are and who we belong to and who is within us. We are personally and vitally united. This is positional truth, by the way. This is our position. Now, we need to make a distinction between our position in Christ and our condition horizontally. As I said earlier, you may not feel very saintly as a believer in Jesus Christ. You may not feel like you're in Christ. And notice the word feeling or emotions. And yet, the Bible declares that positionally, no matter what your condition is, you are in Christ. We are citizens of two kingdoms. We are uh, pursuing Christ and we are withdrawing from the world. As believers in Christ, we are becoming uh, the two choices are as we are pursuing Christ and withdrawing from the world, or we are becoming preoccupied with the world and forgetting Jesus Christ. There was a man named Andres Tomas during World War II. Uh, he was a man decades ago that was put in a Russian psychiatric hospital. He'd been drafted into the Soviet Army, uh, but they had, the authorities had mistaken his Hungarian language for gibberish of a lunatic. And they had him committed, and then they forgot about him for 53 years. Can you imagine that? And a few, uh, number of years ago, the psychiatrist at the hospital began to realize uh, that Tomas was not a lunatic, and they helped him remember who he was and where he came from. And finally, he returned home to Budapest, Hungary, as a war hero. He was in called the last prisoner of World War II. Uh, not only had he forgotten his real name, but he hadn't even seen his own face. He wasn't allowed a mirror. So from the news account, it said, for hours the old man studied his face in the mirror. The deep-set eyes, the gray stubble on his chin, the furrows of furrows on his brow. It was his face, but it was a startling revelation to him. Imagine looking at your own face in the mirror and not recognizing it. Can you imagine that? They're right before their eyes uh, in Scripture is an accurate reflection of themselves. But they don't want to see it. The eyes of their heart, the Bible shows us what we really look like. We're very familiar as we look at ourselves in a mirror. Yet the Bible is holding up a different mirror of our position in Christ. And that is what the recipient of the letter is doing. What is this letter about? What is it saying, the book of Ephesians? Well, first of all, it's about intercession. It reads more like a prayer. It doesn't read like high doctrine when you really read through it, but it reads more like intercession, more than any other New Testament document. It has the character and form of a prayer, and it's something to recognize in that. Secondly, Ephesians is affirmation. It's really affirming who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. It's not apologetics or polemics. It's not this high technical kind of document that we read like Romans would be. But it is bold and it's a jubilant or a joyful affirmation about God, about God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians makes itself welcome and is a joyful document because it dares to shine nothing else on nothing else. God's love and election of his people. God's death and resurrection. Christ's death and resurrection. The Spirit's might and work of other men. So intercession, affirmation. Thirdly, Ephesians is evangelism. When we look at the, the contents of this letter, and I've asked you to try to read through it every day. It's a short letter. 
You can read it through in a matter of minutes, and you'll start getting a sense about what it's a survey that we look at as bold assertions about God's saving purpose and actions, and about God's ongoing work in his self-manifestation through the church. And it's about the bold and joyful ambassadorship that you and I enjoy in the world today. And all of this says it gives Ephesians is a peculiar significance for all of us in the evangelistic task today. And so we see in verse 2 there, to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and then he gives this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's free saving initiative. It's unmerited favor. It is by grace we are saved through faith. It's immeasurable riches of his grace. We are gifted for service by his grace. And he's coupled that with the, the Hebrew term shalom, or the equivalent in Greek, which is peace. Grace and peace. Grace is a, is a, uh, a Greek greeting, and peace is a Hebrew greeting. He's combined them. And peace is what God has taken the initiative to do, namely to reconcile us to him, to reconcile sinners unto himself. And so it's all tied together by Christ. Grace and peace. The, old, the question is, is, do we experience peace of God as we experience the grace of God. Uh, <clears throat> grace expresses God's steadfast love towards man, and peace shows its relational state as a result of that grace. Paul opened his letter to the church at Ephesus with this greeting to the believers, expressing his wish that God's grace and peace be with them all. So the author is the Apostle Paul, the man God used to write down these words, their inspired words from God himself, the recipients are the first century believers in the near context, and then by extension, the church at Ephesus, and then the churches that followed, in the larger context, all believers today, the church today. If you're a believer in Christ, this letter is for you. So what is the purpose, thirdly, what is the purpose, or the aim, if you will? We find that in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Actually, that's a summary statement of what follows down through verse 14, what Russ West read for us. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. And so if you're in the diagramming sentences, here's your challenge. Diagram this sentence. Uh, but the purpose of the letter is to praise God. God is to be praised, to be well spoken of. And he is uh, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's spiritual blessings are given to us. They're expounded in verses 4 through 13. This is a summary verse. The wind of God's blessing is in eternity past. The what of God's blessing is every spiritual blessing. Now for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a hard time comprehending that. The where of God's places are in heavenly places. This occurs five times in Ephesians and nowhere else in Paul's writing. What does it mean? Well, in the Bible, the heavens can either mean uh, the sky or the atmosphere around the world, around the earth, or it can mean heaven, salvation, or glory, the final state of the redeemed in Christ. But here it doesn't mean any literal place like that, but it's the unseen world of spiritual reality. <clears throat> years and years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book, one of his first ones as a diagram. And he contrasted the physical world with the spiritual world. And we all inhabit the physical world. It's very real to us. I mean, this is, you know, we have flesh and blood, and we interact 
with a physical world. But his contention, his uh, thesis was the fact that the spiritual world, the unseen world, is far more important because it lasts forever. And he made that distinction and tried to imagine us. And so this place, this, this heavenly blessing, is God's blessings now and its spiritual reality. And they are in Christ. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given to you by the Father if you are in the Son. In Christ. In Christ Jesus. Before leaving the introduction to this letter today, we must, uh, we must not miss the vital link between the author, the recipients, and the message, or the aim, if you will. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul is the author of the Apostle an apostle of Christ Jesus. The readers are in Christ Jesus. The blessings come to us both from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have grace and peace that flow into our lives because of that. Thus far, the Lord Jesus Christ dominates the Apostle Paul's mind through this letter. In fact, if you count the number of times in these first three verses, you see that Lord Jesus is mentioned a number of times in there. He dominates Paul's mind and compelled to bring Christ in every sentence he, he writes almost. And so he is establishing this new order, if you will, this new society called the church in a culture that desperately needs to know Christ as Savior. And so this morning, as we've introduced this, and as you think about it, and as you read on through those first 14 verses to imagine those spiritual blessings and how we encounter them and how we live in life with them, it should change the way we live. Remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians are about our position in Christ, and in the last three, our practice in light of our position in Christ because of that. So this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. You are no longer who you used to be. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still who you used to be, and you do not have a future and a hope. Because the Bible clearly declares, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father yet through me. And of course, John 3, 16, the verse that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. Put your name in there. For God so loved Gary that he gave his only begotten son that if Gary believed in him, he will not perish but have everlasting life. I've learned in Scripture when you see promises and consequences and, and what are the requirements for the consequence and in John 3.16, we see that belief is required for everlasting life. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are fully persuaded that he is the one who declared that. For by grace, that unmerited favor, you can be born again today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and your use of him to write.